Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I'm all right. I'm just plodding along. Still just being a personal assistant to my dog, who uh, bosses me around all of the time, and I am his bitch. So that's cool. That's my life now, basically. I used to have a... I used to have a real life where I didn't pick up shit in a bag four times a day. Still four times a day. I was told that didn't happen after they're a puppy, but it does four, sometimes five times a day. So if you're ever, I mean, I don't know why you'd ever do this. If you're ever wondering, I wonder what Jamila Jamil's doing right now. I'm picking up shit in a bag. That's what I'm doing almost at all times of the day, wherever I am in the world, wherever you are in the world, I'm picking up shit in a bag. Anyway, enough about me. I, uh, I'm excited to bring you today's guest. She is someone who I've admired from a distance in this industry and we kind of just pass each other by at events and she's someone that I'll always stop to tell her how inspiring and excellent I think she is and she's very, very kind and warm to me and has just always given me really great vibes and been a positive, outspoken role model who who doesn't hold back in interviews, doesn't hold back online, is immune to discouragement and and someone who I think is just such a strong role model in our industry and a bright shining light who just continues to break new ground all of the time and yet stays so humble and so cool and so calm and collected and kind. And so I wanted to chat to her on this podcast. In this, we talk about a huge incident that happened to her where she fell down 22 stairs at the Met Opera when she was 25 and broke her entire face, as in her face became completely unrecognisable and she had to learn how to live with a completely new face whilst in the middle of her Hollywood career and the impact that had on her career and all of the setbacks she faced and all of the ways in which she had to kind of rebuild her confidence and establish her sense of worth outside of her appearance, which is also, by the way, a fabulous appearance. She looks wonderful, uh, always has always will. Um, But we also talk about her directing her new movie, Plan B, which is about two young, diverse leads on a search for accessible Plan B pills, as in the contraceptive pill. We talk about contraception. We talk about women's rights. We talk about diversity and how it was something that she never saw on the television when she was younger. Uh, We also talk about her recent discovery of her ADHD and her treatment for that. Um, And she's just, she's just so frank and, and open and malleable and, She's excited to learn. And I think that's one of the things I find so appealing about her. And a lot of my guests on this podcast, and really all of you, is that we're all just in this shithole together, just trying to figure it out as one. And the people who I find the most valuable are the ones who do not carry an arrogance or wish to know what everyone else thinks that they know. It's the people who are excited to, to know more 
or excited to correct what they didn't understand before. Those are the people who become the glorious Dynams and the Jane Fonders of this world. That's what I want to be. I want to be someone who's learning until I'm dead. And I feel like Natalie Morales is one of those people. Her film Plan B is out May 28th, which is today. And so you can go and see it today. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. She's a joy. This is Natalie Morales. I love, I love you. <laughs> Hello, Natalie Moranis. Welcome to I Way. <laughs> Hi, Jamila. I'm so happy to be here. Really it's happy so to nice. be here. It's so nice to have you. Uh, I've only had the pleasure of meeting you one time, but I've loved you from afar for a very long time. And Likewise. Not just as an excellent comedic performer, but also as just a wonderful role model out in the world. So uh, I'm thrilled. Thrilled you're here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, okay, so for anyone who is not familiar with your work, would you mind telling me about your journey into the acting industry? Oh, um, all right. I'll give you a brief, brief thing. Um, I I uh, started, I moved to LA when I was 20 and then... Um, from Miami. <laughs> Whereabouts in Miami are you from? Um, I'm from the Southwest of Miami or as Miamians call it, Sahuesera, which is, um, yeah, the, that's, that's where I'm from. Um, not Miami beach, not, not the part that people imagine when they see Miami uh, right. or where they think of Miami. So, What's that um, Miami like? What's your Miami like? Um, it's, a. Uh, it's a lot. It's very Cuban. Um, it's very it's a lot of it's a, it's a real mix of cultures now. But when I was growing up, uh, it was it was mostly uh, like ninety nine percent Cuban. Um, I think now it's like maybe sixty five or seventy five percent Cuban and everything else is other Latin cultures mm-hmm. um, for the most part. And, uh, you know, Miami was built by refugee Cubans. So it was it was interesting to grow up there because. I didn't grow up as a minority at all. So I think that contributes to uh, the the confidence I have of, you know, if it's like equal to like a mediocre white man. So that, <laughs> I just I, I didn't grow up feeling different at all. Uh, so. Uh, so, yeah, that's amazing. I also didn't know that about the history of Miami. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was definitely built by, I mean, the, the Miami that you know was definitely built by immigrants and, and refugees, for sure. Um, Fascinating. Def- yeah. yeah. And does it look similar to what we would see in a Will Smith video from the 90s? Uh, the beach does. Mm-hmm. The beach does. The, the You know, the, the southwest part of Miami and everything west of the beach um, is is uh, suburban and and uh, I mean, s- suburban and urban in, in a weird mix. It's, it's, um, it's it's a it's not super walkable, but people walk a lot, and um, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting place to grow up. I imagine that it's not very different than growing up in like Vegas or something, because it's you know you, you don't you don't grow up partying every single second, but everybody that comes to your city does. And so yeah, it it, it you know it it can um, it can be a really sort of fake on the surface place to be if you don't find the right people and the right 
uh, place because, uh, you know, in places like that, people tend to start to only care about like money and partying and how they can, you know, get richer and, and, you know, it's, it's, it can be a very fake place. And I say that living in Los Angeles, I think it, <laughs> it can, it can be, it's, it's, I, I find it to be, uh, in a lot of instances, much faker than, than LA, which is, which is weird, but it's true. hundred percent. And also, I guess it's, it still remains that it depends on who you spend your time with, Absolutely. where you go. I mean, yeah. you and I, you and I met in a, a line for <laughs> right, the right. Uh, red so, carpet, which is yeah, exactly. the ultimate <laughs> demeaning situation where you're queuing up for one hour Terrible. in the freezing cold in high Ugh. heels, waiting to have your photograph taken, feeling like it's just, so gross. Oh, you're on a conveyor belt. Yeah, it's so gross. Yeah, no, of course. And and, and Miami has a lot of really amazing redeeming qualities. You know, it's it, it is a real melting pot. There's so many cultures. I mean, like. Honestly, Spanish is the language spoken in Miami. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not really like you you can go order something at McDonald's and a little Cuban grandma will be like, "Can't you get it?" like they won't they won't listen to you. It, it's that is kind of amazing about Miami and and yes, it depends on the people and the places that you hang out in, but certainly when I when I lived there, it it um a lot of it was was that. It was a culture of like you know, um I don't know, on the surface kind of stuff, which wasn't really for me. But I, I have seen that, like, my friends that did stay there and, and and you know, are fighting to make the city better and, and, and a more open and, and culturally diverse place uh, have really succeeded in that. So I'm, I'm really proud of the Miami that exists right now, even though I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was wondering what your kind of cultures hopes are for their kids because I come from a South Asian background where they're definitely not hoping you're going to become an actress that's not what yeah. they're, they're not it's not what they're dying for you to grow up and do yeah, necessarily. yeah you know I, I I don't I mean I think any any immigrant culture sees the like doctor lawyer uh uh <laughs> You, you know, high powered business person as as the ultimate goal especially like I I my I grew up very poor and my family was, um, you know, lived in poverty in, in Cuba and, and escaped that. And, and anybody that came from Cuba, no matter if you were uh, rich or poor or whatever, came with nothing on their backs because they weren't allowed to leave with anything. So everybody started fresh. So my family had nothing. And then uh, my grandfather was a political prisoner and um, and came to the States just kind of with like a, a shirt on their back and, and built, you know, built it. So I. It, Wait, a political prisoner in Cuba? Yeah, um, everybody's grandfather was. Uh, my right. grandfather was. It wasn't <laughs> unique in that. Um, everybody's grandfather was. But but um, but yeah, they. Uh, I I think they just. It wasn't necessarily about what job I chose, as long as I was able to feed myself and have a home, and they just wanted me to to not squander, you know, that. And and certainly, I mean. I didn't think that this was a possible career for me, really. I don't know what just bravado and and something made me go for it. But you your know, white man mediocrity. Exactly. Gene. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I really didn't see myself as different. I grew up, you know, watching television. I think a lot of children of immigrants do because you, you have to find a way to Access find your way in the world. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And your parents don't do that, you know, and then they don't relate and they can't, you can't learn that from them. So you have to learn it by watching television. And on top of the fact that my mom was a single mom who worked all the time. So television 
was the, was my only uh, outlet to the world. So I, I, you know, grew up thinking I I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with Full House. Are you familiar with that show? Yes, very familiar. with. So Full like House. I grew up thinking like I was Michelle Tanner. Like I, I was like, I, I'm not different than that. Uh, that's me. And and I think, you know, to my parents and, and my family's uh, I, I understand why they thought this. They didn't see anybody like us on TV and film. I, I, I didn't notice that, but they did. And so, like, it didn't seem like a possibility. So everybody was like, just have a backup plan. Just have a backup plan. So in college, I, I double majored in theater and education because I thought, well, I can I can teach theater if I don't succeed at it, you know, mm-hmm. and um but that it wasn't it wasn't so much pressure to be like a lawyer or a doctor as much as it was. Uh, that's unrealistic. Right. And I think anybody who's trying to be an actor or in this particular business will get the same thing no matter what culture you're from, I believe, unless you're really rich and it doesn't matter if you succeed or not. You know, in which case, well done in your life. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, OK, so then at 20, you make the move to Los Angeles. Yeah. And what is your experience like? I am. Um, I I moved here with my best friend. We were in college together and um, at at said college where I was double majoring in theater and education, I I realized in a class one day, I was like, why am I learning acting from people who are teaching it in Florida? Because they don't (laughs) know what they're doing. They're not at the top of their field. Uh, and, and I started to look around and go, this is bullshit. This is all (laughs) bullshit. I should just go out and do it. Uh, and part of the reason I I had that experience is because I booked a commercial, um, when I was in Miami and they were, uh, didn't let me, didn't want me to do it. They were, they thought of themselves as some conservatory, like Juilliard or something. And they were like, you're not prepared. You're not, you've not graduated our program. You're not. And I was like, I'm not prepared to do a CVS commercial that they cast me in. They thought I was prepared. And they were just preventing me from earning a living and getting credits because of whatever thing they thought. And I and that made me sour. (laughs) And I and I was like, that just doesn't seem it doesn't seem fair. Um, So uh, I think that really changed my mind. And so then my my best friend and I moved out here together, uh, slept in a van and then slept in bunk beds. And then um, and then I got a couple commercials out here. I actually got I, I got my first audition was a commercial and I booked that, which made me go, ah, easy, piece of pie. <laughs> so easy. This is going to be great. Um, and then it wasn't that easy, but, but, uh, but I auditioned a lot and I met a lot of, uh, good people and I met a lot of not so great people and, and, uh, the good people helped me along. And then I did, um, a, my very first big thing was a, was a guest star on CSI Miami, which was the like biggest show in the world at that point. Mm-hmm. And then I booked a show called the middleman, um, which I loved, which was this like, um, it's like a, the best way to describe it is like 30 rock meets men in black, mm-hmm. which is bizarre, but it's true. Um, and, uh, and that was really fun. And that only lasted a season. Um, cause it was very weird. It's since developed a, a cult following, which I love very much, uh, cause it was very be- before it's time that show. And, uh, and then I, and then I did, um, and then I did the show called white collar for a season. That was a odd experience, although I loved that cast and, and the crew, but that was, that was weird. And then I, and then I, I was in New York doing that and I, and I, (laughs) I fell down a bunch of stairs at the Met opera 
Shit. And, and I and I, I fell down 20 steps and I landed face first on the balcony wall and I <gasps> broke my face and had to stop the opera and had to be wheeled out of there and um, had to have like an emergency reconstruction surgery on my face because I had like my nose was dust. And so it was like all of this. And, um, and then I looked very different and, um, and I, and I think, I don't know if it was the way that I looked or just my confidence or, or just cause I look, I looked in the mirror for a year and didn't recognize myself at all. Um, I, I basically had to start back at like just guest star stuff when I was already like a series regular on two shows. And so then it like really backtracked me, although wait, I, I got, wait, wait, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. It's a lot. It's a lot. Let's unpack. So you, okay. So you, you had a terrible accident. It changed yeah. your face dramatically for a year or is this well, face I, that you have now different to the face you were born with? It is. It's very, it's different than the face I was born with. I don't think it changed it dramatically. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lovely face. Thank so you. Maybe, maybe uh, well done to the wall. I don't know. I don't care. Uh, but my point being that why did that then change your status in your career? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. That's why what I meant is I don't know if it was because I looked different or because my confidence was just much lower because I didn't feel like myself. I was I was until I got used to it and until the swelling which went down which was like a year um and the pain. Um I I just I was really depressed cuz I I I didn't have any choice over what my face looked like and it wasn't me. And I was really weird for me. And so I don't know why, but I I do know that um, I stopped getting as much work and, um, I was, I was not getting like series regular jobs. I was just getting, um, uh, guest star roles, which was actually great because then that's how I got, um, Parks and Rec and how I got all these other things. And I wasn't on, on, you know, a series regular on a show, which, which happens, you know, it's just, it's like, it's a thing where like in, in Hollywood, in the, in the business, I hate calling it Hollywood in this entertainment business, um, once you're like a series regular on a show, you that's like a step up from guest star essentially, and then you you kind of stay on that trajectory for the most part. You know, you you get a series regular on another show, and so I had done two of those, and then went all the way back to like not being able to get those jobs and just getting uh, small guest star roles on on shows. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by like it it just knocked something down, and I don't know if it was my confidence or just the way I looked or what it was. You know, um, so it was interesting. It was an interesting time in my life. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And I think yeah. it also like it it forces you to kind of dig deep into self-love and in an industry that is so obsessed with the way that you look, especially of, a woman's of course. face of uh, course. and our society and the fact that you're already coming from a hugely underrepresented minority in this business. Yeah. I can imagine that would have really shaken the fucking shit out of you. How old were you when this happened? I was, um, it was, I was 25. Yeah. Yeah, 25. That's just Um, a ridiculous time. That's when everything's starting to surface emotionally anyway, before you hit your thirties. That's just, oh God, it's too much. I'm so glad you got to meet and work with Mike Schur. Me too. Me too. You know, I, I, when that happened, uh, when that accident happened, I was, I had like I don't know, shock blindness because I, I couldn't, I hit my face so hard that I couldn't see for like 15 minutes. Like I, oh I would only see black. And so when I, when I, my, my face bounced off the wall, 
and I tried to talk and it was just blood. And, and I was like, oh, like in my brain, I was like, my face is gone. <laughs> like I don't have a face anymore. And that was my first thought. And then my second thought was, I guess I'll be a writer. That was literally my, the second thing I thought at that moment. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh God. Oh love. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I'm really, I'm really, really happy that you were able to come through that. To me too. Go on me to do too. all of the amazing things you have gone on to do yeah, since. Me too. Um, Thanks. And I'm, I'm glad that that 25 year old who was lying there with a broken face was proven wrong that she <laughs> yeah. that she didn't have to be confined to any one job that she didn't want yeah, to do yeah me too This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Can we talk about Mike Sher for a minute? Can we talk about how incredible he is? Uh, for people who don't know, Mike Sher is the creator of The Good Place. I wouldn't have a career if he didn't live and wasn't born because he plucked me from complete obscurity and he's a total comedy genius but also I would say in the like top one percent of humans especially men in power 
in the entertainment industry as regards how he treats women, how he treats minorities and how he works to never put anyone in a box. What was it like for you working with Mike Scher? Yeah, I mean, he treats everybody that way. It's it's really great. Um, I I started working with him on Parks and Rec, although I didn't I didn't work with him constantly every day because mm-hmm. I was a I was a recurring guest star on that show. But I did meet him quite a bit and get to know him on that. And I was a I mean, Parks and Rec was my favorite show before I was on it. Um, so I was like thrilled to be on that show. I mean, I I auditioned to play um aziz's girlfriend by doing an impression of aziz <laughs> um and because i was like <laughs> i was like oh like oh wait i'm sorry no do your impression of no, aziz right now please please um, oh my god i beg you just give me one line no that's it, that's it. <laughs> um uh i i so i did that because i was like Oh, any, any character, like any character that's going to play the girlfriend of this character, the only way that that works is if they are very similar. And so I, I, that's how I did it. And I got the job and then they were like, great, just don't do that. Don't do that profession at all. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, fine. Um, but then I, I pretended, I pretended to be a socialite who's, who had been um, haunted and invaded by the ghost of Princess Diana. That was the weird thing that I did. That's in, in a ten, Yeah, in a 10-minute improv with Mike Scher. And similarly, after they gave me the job, they were like, don't do that. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> but he likes a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Because he's a fucking weirdo yeah. in the best possible way. And yeah. he champions the underdog. He champions the weirdo. He champions left of centre, like Parks and Rec and The Good Place and everything he's ever made have always been television that don't uh, belittle the intelligence of the audience. It's always left of centre of what network comedy is quote unquote supposed to be. And also, do you find that even though you didn't interact with him that much uh, necessarily because you were, you know, he isn't in all of the time or you're not there on the same days, it's the atmosphere he creates on set that well, is yeah, overwhelmingly Yeah, different. absolutely. And then, and then we did Abby's together in which we really did work together uh, a lot um, um, after that. And, and so, yes, I, I got to experience the atmosphere he creates on set, um, you know, in, in both of those shows. And, and, it, and, you know, it's not like he's, he is a, a comedic genius and everybody has told him that and everybody thinks that, and I'm sure he knows that, but he doesn't act that way. And he's, he's, um, he's very like, I don't know, <laughs> I guess this is the right thing to do. And he's doing it from such a, a, a pure place in his heart that is um, collaborative with everyone he works with, but also, um, always driven by by like humanity. That's all his stories are about. No matter what they are, no matter what the characters are, they're all they all have this. Um, I don't want to say it's like a kindness behind it all the time. It's like the leading force of everything he does, which is why it's so like it, it's so it feels so good to watch what he does. And it also feels that way when you're working on it. And it, and I think it just, you know, it elevates everything into this, um, into the way that I, I wish all of life and all of work was, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. Did he give you the little speech he gives actors at the beginning? I don't, I don't know what speech that is. It's a mini, mini speech where he's just like, I have two rules. First rule is, best idea wins. He was like, I don't care if it was the head writer or the janitor who came up with the, or the caterer who comes up with the best joke. Whoever says it, 
That's what happens. That's what goes in the show. There's no hierarchy here. Number two, no assholes. <laughs> By that, he doesn't mean you literally can't have an asshole. Right, he just sure. means that he doesn't hire or work with anyone who behaves badly. And I wish more people would enforce that on set because it really does change the mentality of everyone there. Everyone there knows that there's a no, there's no like three strike policy. It's one strike and you're out. That's it. Yeah. If you are rude to someone, if you are disrespectful, if you break any of the rules of human kindness, Mike Schur will kick you the fuck out. And I, I did. I, yeah, I didn't. We didn't get that speech, but that was like just known. I think we were right. all we were all working under the same the same values uh, for sure, because that's also how I work. Although I didn't have the power to fire anybody, but um, I, I, yeah, I, I, that's that's exactly right. I think that that's how it should be. I'm really frustrated uh, for you about how Abby's went because Abby's was a good show. It was a great idea. It was also one of the first times that we had seen, I think it was the first time we had a bisexual protagonist on network television ever. Yeah. Yeah. And after one season it was cut and I would love for you to talk to me about your feelings on that. I know they were strong, rightfully so. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) they, They were. I mean, Listen, working on that show was amazing, and and actually everybody that that on NBC's end was amazing too. It, it was just that I think uh, something uh, the, the the presidency of NBC changed right in the middle of our show, and um, I think the people that that took over it wasn't their idea, and they didn't support it, and um, they didn't promote it at all. Um, yeah, I didn't see promo for it. No. I remember Mike telling me about it for ages and being so no, excited. No. And then I, I wondered if it was even happening. And then kind of like yeah. halfway I mean, through, I found out it was just because I'm a fan of you. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah, it, it was it was a struggle to get them to promote us in any way, even on their own network on like Fallon or something. It was it was it was really hard. And it felt like they were just like, well, and Mike would never say this because Mike is great and, and, and Mike sees the bright side in everybody. But it felt to me, it felt like they were like, well, we have this great relationship with Mike Sure, We'll just put it on the air. If it happens to be a hit, great. If not, great. We're, we're done. And yeah. And, and it's a shame because, you know, there's a lot of I, I remember there being quite a lot of when when the show was first announced as being made, there was a lot of kudos for the fact that there was going to be a bisexual lead. And yeah, so they got a lot of good press for that for you know ticking that yeah. box of being the like the most progressive of all of the networks for doing exactly this. and then when it actually came to it didn't didn't give it the love and support that any yeah. show needs i find i find that that has happened quite a bit with different networks not just with nbc as uh, when it comes to upfronts which is is when networks sell ads uh space ad space to companies right so they they mm-hmm. the upfronts is when they show you all their new shows and they tell you oh this is a new show abby's with a bisexual lead and like, oh, this is all the stuff we're gonna do buy ad space here right but then um they don't give these shows a chance and and that has happened so many times but particularly with latinx led shows it happened with um the beauty and the baker it happened there's zero tv shows right now with uh latinx leads on network tv not one zero uh, yeah none um, they always get canceled within one season. They always get yeah. shelved. They don't get promoted. Um, we're like <laughs> such a huge part of the population and such a huge part of the viewership. And, and we're so underrepresented in this, um, in this way. And, and I, and I find it, uh, a little 
bit hypocritical to to tout that at the upfronts and then not support those shows. I, I hope that it changes. You know, I, I really enjoyed. I mean, it was my as I told you, I was a TV kid. You know, it was like my dream. I watched Thursday nights on NBC, must see TV every week religiously. It was my church being on an NBC comedy show on Thursday nights was mind blowing to me. And, and it was disappointing to not feel the support that I knew other shows and other things had gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, That, that was sad, but you know, massively happens for a reason. (laughs) hundred percent. You, you are one of the more vocal actors in this industry. And I, uh, I know that over the last five years, a lot of people have become increasingly outspoken, but for years, uh, you've just been going for it, like using your platform as much as you can and just so unapologetically. And even the way you just spoke about that is something that a lot of actors wouldn't do. And I really appreciate you for doing it. Uh, other times you've kind of caught my attention aside from just being someone I admire as a performer when you were harassed by the paparazzi and that they took a photograph uh, up your skirt where they managed to capture your vagina. (laughs) And rather than deleting it, they sold it without your consent to a newspaper and where it was labelled as a wardrobe malfunction, which instantly puts the blame on you. Right. And your speaking out about that, I thought was incredibly cool and made a lot of people feel safer to start telling the paparazzi to go fuck themselves. <laughs> That's good. I didn't know that. That makes me happy. They didn't actually get a photo of my vagina because mm-hmm. I was wearing underwear. No, but, I know. But they, they proceeded to announce it as though it mm-hmm. was that um, because it was flesh-colored underwear. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, they, they took a picture of me. Uh, you know, it just, uh, it's just, it's such a it's this dumb contract, you know, where where I get dressed up and and do a whole thing to promote a movie, right? And 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 the contract is I stand against this wall, you make your money by taking a photo of me uh and then selling that to promote this movie. Um where in there is it right for you to purposely take a shot up my skirt and then sell it as a wardrobe malfunction and would you do that to anybody you cared about, why would you do that to me? And 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 what that violates the whole dumb thing we're doing, um, but the, that we've done for years, which is I I stand there and I and I take a and I and I pose for you so that you can make money selling a picture um, that is for this whole movie event, right? And and then you you do that to me for what why what like why it it just i i it just made me upset and i and i felt like when i saw that i was like this is so why am i getting shit for this like i didn't do anything wrong i walked i i moved my legs (laughs) and i walked and someone even if the picture had been an accident which it wasn't even if it had been what on earth makes you go, you know what, I, I'm going to post this instead of let me just delete this because it's a bad picture up someone's skirt that they didn't intend to pose for and I didn't intend to take, right? So mm-hmm. that, that just, no one's forcing you to post photos of a wardrobe malfunction. You're mm-hmm. posting them because you want to make money off of them and that is vile, um, and I just was really uh, upset about it at the time. And, and as far as my outspokenness, it's not something I can really help. 
Uh, I love that. I love that. (laughs) I think it's really great. I also, um, I have now become so intense and scary as an outspoken person that I had a quote unquote wardrobe malfunction where a bit of my nipple was out for the whole of the Emmys red carpet. No one said anything. No one said anything <laughs> because they knew that I'd be such a demon about it. <laughs> but my well, nipple good. <laughs> is out in every single photograph of the Emmys 2019. It's just going, hello. Amazing. Uh, just wanted it's moment. It's um, a great memory. It's a yeah. great memory. It's also your body. It's also yeah, your okay. body. It's a bit like, of fucking nipple. It's not even like properly my nipple. It's a scar that yeah. is above my nipple that looks like a bit of nipple. Um, I, uh, I'll never forget Anne Hathaway being photographed while getting out of a car. That's something they do that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know that they do. So as soon as your car pulls up, yeah. the door is opened by a member of staff at the red carpet. And then photographers are already there waiting at very low angles to get a photograph, mm-hmm. uh, the most vulnerable photograph they can possibly get. And they're going for up your skirt and you and as anyone knows when you have to get out of a car traditionally you put one leg out and then you swing your ass around and you get the rest of your leg out that's the traditional getting out of a car method for most of us if no one was photographing up your skirt yes you exactly just, yeah so we have to try and we have to try and do it. it's normalized to have to try and do it in terror like holding down your crotch and holding covering down the material it. and covering and and like trying to like kind of cr- doing this sort of weird jujitsu crawl out of a car as if that's our responsibility as if men can't just because they are predominantly men i think i've mm-hmm. seen five female paparazzi ever in my 12 year career yeah as if it's on us to make sure that a photograph of our crotch doesn't reach the entire internet rather than on them, the owners of the fucking cameras. To not take it, yeah. I um, started having panic attacks in front of uh, the the red carpet line where now I literally will stop. I'll completely stop and I make them just go one by one by one slowly at my own pace. And you're going to get the photo you get when I feel fucking ready. But there are numerous photographs of me with my mouth open, both of my fingers up, giving a speech (laughs) about anxiety at almost every red carpet I've ever done. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's pictures of me like that on the red carpet being like, like saying no to someone because so many times they'll be like, Smile, smile, and they're like yelling at you. I and know, like, and they're all going over here, over here, over here, yeah. from twelve different directions, and you can't tell. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, um, there, thank there, you there, for <laughs> calling out that paparazzi thing because it furthered how a lot of us felt in our right to turn this around and no longer think. As with the Anne Hathaway thing, she was the one shamed for the fact that someone photographed her crotch from an underneath angle and managed to get a picture of it. And yeah. then that went all over the internet. And then she was forced to explain herself as if she'd made a mistake. Yeah. Live I'm sorry that I news. have yeah. body parts. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really thrilled that you did that. Uh, you are outspoken about so many things. And, and as I said, that was one of them that I found that I found very helpful. Well, I'm glad I, did, I didn't know. Industry. I didn't know that it would uh, help you at all. And I'm glad that it did. Well, it yeah. went very, very viral when you did it. Okay, so I want I want to move on because I have a million things to talk to you about, uh, including another thing that you are outspoken about, which is women's sexual health uh, <laughs> and also young women's journeys and diversifying how those, those stories are told. You have a film that you have directed and you directed it last year, I believe, and it's coming out today. Yes. Will you talk to me about Plan B? I'm so... Uh, proud of this movie and so excited about it. It's um, 
It's about two uh, teenagers, um, both uh, daughters of immigrants who live in South Dakota, uh, an Indian American girl and a Mexican American girl, and they're best friends. And they are, you know, uh, not the popular kids in their all white school. And um, and they have a party, and um, they one of them loses uh, their virginity as if as a thing in high school but it's not really a thing in real life because <laughs> um, virginity is a construct. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of them has sex and uh, the next morning pees out the condom and then they freak out and they're like, oh, we got to go get the plan B pill. So they go to the pharmacy. But in a lot of states in the United States, um, South Dakota being one of them, there's a thing called a conscience clause uh, which allows pharmacists to deny anybody uh, <gasps> contraception or birth control, uh, no matter their age or, or anything, uh, if it goes against their religious beliefs. Um, so they are denied the uh, I didn't the plan know that. <laughs> yeah. I know plenty about the hurdles towards, like the hurdles between us and abortions, but I didn't know that yeah. someone can just decide not to give you Contraception. I mean, it's contraception and it's not, it's never looked at as contraception, which is something you and I spoke about previously. It's looked more as more of a process of abortion and it isn't, it's contraception. Not at all. Yeah. It's taken, uh, you know, I think it's up to 72 hours after uh, unprotected sex and it's contraception, which means it is, uh, you know, it's the same as birth control. It's, it's, if you were pregnant, it would not work. It does not abort it's not an abortive pill so it's totally mm-hmm. different which makes no sense to me because if you're if you're against abortion why would you also be against contraceptives that blows my mind uh because if what you're wanting is 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 to not have abortions then why would you want people to get pregnant in the first place mm-hmm. anyway so they um they have to get their asses to the one planned parenthood uh that is across the state and um and all of this uh, sounds like it's it's not this, but it's it's a comedy. It's a hard R rated comedy in the vein of Superbad and uh, you know maybe American Pie or you know all the all the teen movies that we grew up loving. Um, and uh, and it's uh, you know it just the quest behind it. The quest in all these teen movies is always like let's get to the cool party or let's uh, get my dad's car back or let me get the girl at the end of the night and get into the Ivy league school. Oh, correct. And and this one is, has all the same wild elements as any of those, you know, road trip movies or buddy movies or teenage quest movies, except the quest is healthcare. Um, So, but, but it, it, uh, so it's a, for me, it's a sort of subversive way to get that, um, knowledge across to people like you didn't know i didn't know that either before i made this movie about the conscience clause uh uh laws that exist and just how difficult it is for you know planned parenthood provides i went to planned parenthood uh when i had no money and i was a a teenager and in my early 20s and i didn't have insurance and i got pap smears there and healthcare there and birth control there and it was free and it was the only way i could get healthcare because i didn't have insurance and so many People get healthcare that way um, and they're dwindling in, in states, you know, in South Dakota right now, there is only one uh, in the entire state. Um, so it's uh, it 
it's a, it's an important thing, but it's also, I mean, my absolute like pleasure and thrill to, to put that in a, in a comedy about two best friends. Um, because to me, like, while that is a tragedy, uh, that is women's lives. Like our lives, everybody's right. But women in particular, every day is filled with absurdity and tragedy and comedy and uh, happiness and sadness and jokes. And it, it's all the same thing. It's not, uh, to me, it's not mm-hmm. one thing. And, and I love, I love that about this movie and I loved making it. And I, and the two stars of it, Kuhu Verma and Victoria Morales are incredible. Uh, they, they're, their chemistry is like unbeatable. Like, you know, when you watched, uh, if you did, if you watched like um, uh, Fleabag and you're, and you watch the hot priest and Fleabag and you're like, I've never seen chemistry in my life. That is chemistry. That mm-hmm. is what I'm seeing. That's what I was looking for uh, in this. And I found it and I'm really excited about it because they're incredible actors on their own, but together they like knock it out of the park. Um, so I'm just, thrilled about it and um and it's also going to be in um i think amc movie theaters in la for a week uh, which is really exciting that is um, exciting yeah are you gonna are you gonna be able to have a premiere in a pandemic like a little uh, mini one we are we are yes we're, we are working on that yes um okay, that's exciting so I, that I should hope. be celebrated and also thank god we're having more and more women direct films and and i love the fact that this is also a film that has been centered around the kinds of kids that we don't always see in a comedy. You know, if you often, if you see a film that has a minority or two minorities as the young leads, as teenagers who perhaps don't come from affluent backgrounds, it's often just tragedy. Correct. That their yeah. film would be, you know, based around. And some some stunning films have been made around kids from yeah. poor or from ethnic backgrounds or, or both. Um, but I think that it's amazing to be able to portray them just as, uh, just regular teenagers who, yeah. have, who have the levity of the ridiculousness of adolescence, but also yeah. who are going through this incredibly real thing. And you're giving that group of teenagers the representation that you didn't have when you were a teenager. And I think right. that's really cool. It's, it's really exciting. I mean, you know, girls don't get to be in these movies in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally, all these teen movies uh, starred men in the lead roles. Uh, I think Booksmart, Booksmart was a was a big thing because it was like finally women in these lead roles. But as much as I loved Booksmart, which I I did love it, it was predominantly white, uh, very very wealthy, and the main issue in that movie, like the the main problem, was that they the two lead girls got into really good schools, and so did everyone else. That's the problem. And I was like, that's not really relatable to kids in America today that and and I wanted to make something. Also, a lot of the movies that have been made are like, you know, in L.A. or New York or in in these coastal big cities. And and, and there's so much more of America in the middle that are never spoken to and are never represented. And I and I I was really excited about doing that. it just was, it's, it's really cool to me to, to be able to do that. And you're right. Like, I, I think I always say this, this is something I've, I've repeated because I think it's sort of my life's mission is that like, we need to, uh, you know, tell stories about marginalized people that are not only about how they are marginalized, 
uh, because we have plenty of those. Those exist and they're good and they're necessary, but also it continues to otherize us mm-hmm. if that's all that's ever told. And so we have regular lives that exist. And and, and I, I don't think about the fact that I'm like a brown queer woman every second of every day that or maybe not even once a day. I have my life and I live it and I do things. And I think those stories are worth telling as well. And and uh, and that's kind of my life's mission at the moment is to 100%. continue to do that. And yeah. I think we need to now extend that towards people with disabilities and more queer LGBTQ plus stories where it's not always just about the maximum struggle of that their communities do totally face, but also the mundane or the silly or the the lovely or the loving and the happy side of their experiences. Absolutely. They're not just uh, sob story kind of weapons to make the audience feel something these are representing human beings in this world and so absolutely i can't wait to watch this film i'm gonna watch it as soon as it comes out i think you'll like it i'm (laughs) excited for you to see it was directing something you always planned on getting involved in yes um i mean i i directed theater and sketch when i was i was first starting out and i i think you know partly imposter syndrome and partly uh the people that I was around that were in these positions of writer and director were not incredibly supportive of an actor wanting to do that. It was, it was kind of like, well, you didn't go to film school. So mm-hmm. it's cute that you want to do that. And I, and I internalized that and I really did feel that. So I was directing theater, but I, I, I felt like I was writing and I always felt kind of like, oh, this is not as good as someone who, you know, who does this professionally. And I, and I had written scripts and I was like, looking for people to direct the scripts. And I was not super confident. And then finally I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just start directing. Maybe I'll just start doing music videos. I've always wanted to direct music videos and I have so many friends and bands. And so I I was like, let me, let me start that way. So I just started directing music videos for my friends for free and different bands. And then I, and then I pitched some stuff to funny or die um, and did like funny or die little series and shorts for them. And then, and then, and then that shifted into some like, web series. And then, um, I did this music video for Andrew Bird, um, that was in conjunction with, uh, every town for gun safety, which is an organization I work with a lot. Um, and, and I, I, it was like such an incredible experience and, and the video got some attention. And then Mark Duplass saw that and asked me to direct an episode of room 104. And then that went really well. <laughs> and, um, he asked me to do another one on that same season. And then we made a movie together last year as well that I directed. Um, and so it just kind of uh, snowballed from there. But it, it was always something that I knew I could do in my gut. But but I was always sort of holding myself back because I thought I thought for a lot of my life, I, I, I learned this lesson a few years ago. I thought that if things had always been done a certain way, or this is how you do things, or this is how this looks, that's how it had to be. And I was, I never fit into those molds, no matter what it is really. Mm-hmm. And, and um, once I realized that like nothing has to be any way and that my experiences and thoughts and ideas and, and, uh, and, and opinions were just as valid as someone who had gone to film school, like maybe I just do it differently. 
Um, and, and that doesn't mean I'm not open to learning about techniques and ways to do it and, and, and different uh, technical things and, and creative things. I am. I'm so hungry for that. And, and I have been since I started in this business, I would I would stay, uh, you know, uh, when the actors were told to take breaks, I would stay and ask camera men questions and I would ask the director questions. And I would I just was always curious about all of the aspects of this industry because I, I love it so much. Um, and I, and once I realized that I, you know, I may not have the, the knowledge and, and experience that someone who went to film school or has been directing for a long time has, I don't have that, but I have what I have, which is also valuable and is different. But you're speaking as if you've had the sort of career that I've had where I turned up, I'd never done an acting like audition or never acted before. And then I got the good place and then was plunged into uh, immediate acting um, heaven with with like Ted Danson and Kristen Bell and Mike Sher and all these people. That, that is that is taking a truly untraditional like jump in the in the deep end where your imposter syndrome is justified because you're literally an imposter. <laughs> but you've actually had more of a traditional part. You're not giving yourself credit for the fact that you earned your stripes. Like that's how most of the men that I know who are now directors got into it. it was that same exact path. I think again, not to politicize everything, but again, I think as a woman, there's this extra pressure on you to do it by the book. Almost all the men I know who are successful directors, some of them didn't even have to take the steps of, of making the shorts, pitching them to Funny or Die, making those uh, music videos. A lot of them just were actors who said, hey, I'd really like to direct one of these episodes of the show I'm on. And the creator went, sure, give it a shot. You're a funny guy. So please don't undersell the fact that, yes, uh, that, that you should totally be proud about the fact that you've managed to do this without the traditional schooling method. But you fucking worked your way up. You've taken oh, all I of did. the steps in. And I, I and, absolutely did. But yeah, I didn't have that same that. reception. I didn't have that same reception at all within... Um, within my own agency, not, not the one I'm with right now, uh, my old agency, when I was directing those music videos and when I was doing that, I asked to meet with their directing agent and they wouldn't, mm. they wouldn't have it. So even the people that were representing me weren't supporting me when I was like, I'm trying to give you money. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you do that? I, and, uh, so, so it, it was, there was a real gatekeeping yeah. happening, uh, I don't know if it was because I was a woman or I was an actor or whatever it was, mm -hmm. or I didn't have, I didn't have the schooling or the experience or whatever it was, but I will say if it wasn't for Mark Duplass, I wouldn't be where I am right now because it was so hard for me to break through in any way. And people now are like, Oh, you're a woman and you're a Latin. Of course you're directing. Cause they're giving all these chance that, you know, and it's like, that's uh. not the case. But people appreciate people see it that way, and it's and it's well. That's annoying. why I wanted to make the point that like you've done actually much oh, I more. Have. You've you've, <laughs> you've made more of the micro steps that a lot of people, a lot of men in particular, white men don't have to even make. So very true. It's not a matter of affirmative action. I believe that it's you've not. been given it's this opportunity. <laughs> like you know what you're fucking doing, and and you've built up that knowledge over years. Yeah. Uh, I, I I never thought it was affirmative action at all because that, that wasn't my experience. Um, the imposter syndrome that I was, I was facing was, was even daring to do it, not mm -hmm. having been given the job and not knowing what I'm doing. Totally. That's very different. Um, but, but yeah, I, it is something that I love doing. I, I realized a while ago that directing is just like having an opinion 
And I've always had that. I just had to be <laughs> quiet about it. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's been really rewarding. And what and do you love the most about it? Can I ask? I love uh, the collaborative nature of it. Um, that is what I what I truly love about this this business. I I I always say that I like. If you, I try to explain this to my mom when she has like, well, well, why haven't you stopped working? <laughs> so you're where it's 16 hours and you've been working on this for months and what, what's the deal? And I'm like, so, okay, if you think about a symphony or, you know, an orchestra or whatever recorded and you think about all the different parts of that symphony and, and every instrument and, and whoever composed it and wrote it and the conductor and then the people recording it, the engineer, all, all mm-hmm. of that, that's just one part of one piece of a score for a movie. Um, and there's so many other people and brains and things working on this in all different fields to make this one thing. And if the director is, I mean, sometimes that happens even without this because those people are so good. But if the director is able to clearly communicate a vision and get everybody on board and get everybody excited about the same thing. And also um, what I love doing is hiring people who are much better than me at what they do and going like, this is what I think, but what do you think? And how can we make this even better than what I thought it could be? And and empowering these people who are really good at their jobs to do to be excited as excited about this movie or this TV show as I am. And that feeling when everybody's working at that level, when everyone's like psyched about the fact that they're at the top of their game in their job and they're getting to do what they love, it creates magic and and you feel it when you're on set and you feel it when you're watching the movie and and that is my favorite part and as an actor i get to do that when i have a great director or when i have someone like that but if i don't then i don't right and so yeah it, it can be somewhat limiting as an actor but as a director i get to create that environment um for the most part unless the producers or the studio sucks or the script sucks which i i try not to work with but as a director, I get to I get to create that and that is unbeatable. That's like the best best thing. Wanna make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is something we were talking about together when we were on the phone and it's a relatively recent realization that you've had and it's around ADHD. Now, I don't know if that necessarily falls into the mental health category, but for a lot of your life, because of it, you didn't know that you had it and therefore thought that you just had anxiety. So yeah, last year, um, right in the middle of, or right at the beginning of COVID, um, all that I could do to earn money was write, And I, um, I had this assignment to write with my my best friend and my comedy partner Serena Fiala. We had we had um we're writing a movie for Universal, and it's a dream. Like uh, it's the maybe the biggest opportunity I've ever had, right? And and I I was just so excited about that 
And we would sit down to write and I could not concentrate. I could not focus. I, I couldn't do anything. And I would be constantly interrupting her. And this is something that I've dealt with my whole life and felt annoying and sort of fought through and, and drank coffee and just kind of like focused on it. But um, there was something about this particular time where I, I always thought maybe, maybe I have ADD, but I don't know. I don't, it's not like the, like I've seen with, you know, the young boys that I went to school with that had it, or it's not like that. So maybe, I, maybe I'm just being lazy. I've been told my whole life that I, you know, by different people, you're just being lazy. And so I thought, oh, oh, that's what it is. And then I finally was like, you know what? This is affecting my livelihood. It's affecting my work. I'm going to talk to my doctor about it. And I did. And she gave me the, a, a test for anxiety, for depression, and for ADHD. And ADHD, I passed with flying colors in a way that the questions on this test, I was like, what? This is like, I was like, this is what this is? Because all of my life, I thought I was just annoying. And it turns out that it was, <laughs> it was just neurodivergence. And, you know, it's, it's called a disorder, but I, I, I think so many people have it. And, and it's very underdiagnosed in young girls and in women specifically. Extreme, this is what I've learned since then, um, because it shows up so differently. It presents itself so differently than it does in men and in boys, um, particularly in boys. But it's called a disorder, but I, I, I feel like it's, it's just a disorder in terms of working the way that, you know, a nine to five schedule and, and our current society works. It's not a disorder in that, like, I, I can be really productive and really uh, inspired and really focused when I'm doing it my way, which is why it had worked for me in different ways my whole life, because I would figured out ways to mask, ways to cope, ways to to figure it out for myself. But it was when I was faced with this like duty where I had to like stare at a computer and write and these designated hours where I really felt like, oh, no, something is really wrong. And having that diagnosis just opened up the world for me in this way that I, I started doing all this research. Like, for example, I uh, one of the things that I hated about myself, hated, truly hated, was that when my friends or, or anybody was talking to me, particularly if it was something very important or very sad, I could not help myself. I would interrupt them in some way. And I would say something like, it didn't matter if it was sharing my own experience in that situation, which I, in the back <laughs> of my head, I'd be like, why are you doing this? It's not about you. Let them talk. Right. Or if it was just something that I had to say. But what what I learned is that people with ADHD, um, I, I the reason I'm trying to do that is because I am listening to you so intently that if I don't say what's in my head, I'm going to keep thinking about that. I'm going to stop listening to you. So I have to say the thing so that in order to get it out of my brain, so I can keep listening to you and that I never knew that that's what it was. And now it makes so much you sense. You thought you were just rude. Yes. And I couldn't fucking <laughs> Did other it. people think you were rude? I'm sure. And I would, <laughs> I would apologize all the time. I, I mean, there's so many things in my life now that are illuminated by this that I've done forever. It's also genetic. And there's things I see in my mom and in, and, and in my family that I'm like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is what this is. Like, I would, you know, I would walk into a room with the intent of doing something and do everything but that thing. And that's called executive dysfunction or like there, there's all these other things I haven't. Man, I really need to go it's, see a psychiatrist that this is this is the third person who's come on a podcast talking about this where I'm just like, this is exactly how 
how I feel. Um, also, you had a really interesting, you were talking to me about the fact that the reason that maybe you'd gone so long without a diagnosis is because we are, it's it's predominantly young boys that were studied yeah. for yes. the symptoms of ADD and ADHD. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, as a, along with most things, you know, like it's always studied in men um, mm-hmm. because they find that women's hormones are too unpredictable or whatever they are, but then it's only studied in men. Um, but yeah, it was mostly studied in, in young boys. So it's it, the, I mean, when I was a child, my mom used to always say the story and I look back, I used to talk so much in kindergarten that my uh, teacher put my desk next to her desk so that I wouldn't interrupt everybody because I would finish my work and then going around, go around talking to people. How do you not know? How do you not know that that's a kid with ADHD? You just think it's always like the, the, the smart, like basically overachieving girls um, mm-hmm. who do really well in school without barely studying. And that's ADD. If you were an avid reader as a child and now you can't read a fucking paragraph in a book, same thing. That, oh my that God, was like, that's me. <laughs> yes, I know. Fuck. <laughs> I know. It was it's me too. It's so crazy. I was a straight A, like A star student until I was like 16, left school. And then I Same. haven't been able to read a fucking thing since. Same. I used to be able to memorize textbooks, you know, like chunks and chunks and chunks of textbooks. And I used to really ingest. And I feel like every year that I get older, it gets worse and I find it harder. And I've been supposed to write a book for like a year and a half. I'm like a year and a half late on my deadline. And I just have, I just can't. Please, frozen. please, please talk to your doctor. It, it, it gave one of the side effects <laughs> is not euphoria, but I, I felt such gratitude and such happiness because I was like, oh my God, I finally, I just feel like I can think because what, what's happening, what it actually is, is that your brain is able to take in so much information at once that you can't focus on one thing because you're sitting down to do something and you hear the bird across the street and your neighbor talking and you think about the other 40 things that you have to do. <laughs> yep. And you, yes. And so the feeling, <laughs> the best way I can describe it is that when you're properly medicated um, and, and I don't feel anything other than this is I feel the same kind of calm as like walking into the woods and just sitting there. And that feeling that just washes over you, that is the same thing I feel now every day. And I'm able to, I, I don't go to sleep feeling like I procrastinated all day and I didn't do anything, which is what I did for every day of my life up until last year. Um, and I, it's completely changed my life in in the most positive way. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's great. That's so inspiring. And so amazing to find out that that was, and so your anxiety has predominantly gone away or gone down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Damn. Damn it. Natalie, you might fucking change my whole life. (laughs) You're going to get a bouquet of flowers from my manager, (laughs) from my publishing agent. I hope I do. It really, my anxiety went way down and I realized, oh, I was just having anxiety because I couldn't fucking think straight. Oh God, (laughs) finding out that so many girls don't get diagnosed with this is just so frustrating. It's just another case of our misogynistic medical history and nightmare situation. Um, Natalie, thanks for being so honest and open and fun to talk to. You're a dream. Likewise. So before I let you go, Natalie, will you just tell me, what do you weigh? Um, All right, let's see. I weigh my love of animals and people. Um, I weigh my beautiful... Uh, complicated cultural relationships. 
I weigh um, how hard I've fought for the life that I have. And, um, and, and yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that's pretty good for now. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. And uh, I'm happy you're here. I hope we get to work together someday. I hope so too. Maybe you'll direct me. I would and, love that. Uh, and I think you're a real gem in this Thank business. Thank you. you. Loads too. of love and have a lovely evening and congratulations on your film. Thanks. Plan B is out now. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Minna. I am a 17-year-old girl from Queensland, Australia, and I am Japanese Australian. I weigh myself with my resilience, my fantastic bullshit radar, my compassion for strangers, and my love for the people around me, whether they're my family or whether they're someone they're someone that I just know from around school, I weigh myself with the ability to discern when it is the right time to say sorry and not just say sorry because women are trained to say sorry at almost everything. I weigh myself with my leadership skills and the ability to not care if people call me bossy behind my back or to my face because I'm the one getting stuff done. So yeah, that's what I weigh myself with. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.